listening to a good story, we generally don't like to know the ending. We don't want the story to be ruined for us. We don't want any spoilers. But knowing the end can change how we listen to the story. If we know certain characters take center stage, we might pay more attention to them early on. There might be some sad moments, but if we know how the story ends, we can endure through the sadness for the joy to follow. We think knowing the end ruins the story, but in reality, it gives hope and clarity. When it comes to the story of redemption, we get a glimpse of the end of that story. It doesn't always make our present experience easier, but it does give us hope when we understand that all sad things will become untrue. When we know that our world is broken, but that God is moving to restore and redeem. We get to know the end of the story. And spoiler alert, God wins. Well, good morning again, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you saw, we're working through Revelation. So this week, we actually begin in the text itself, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. A um, couple thank yous, though, as I begin today. First is thank you to those of you uh, men who came yesterday to the men's breakfast. And a special thanks to those of you who did not come because we ran out of bacon. Uh, as well, who said amen? Thanks, Phil. Uh, as well, I wanted to say thank you to Barb, who put a lot of work in and getting all the food and stuff ready. You didn't hear it, but all the men clapped for you for a while yesterday, Barb. Which gets me to my second thank you. Uh, Micah, Braden, and I had the opportunity to go to Chicago this past week. Uh, every year, our e the EFCA denomination, of which we are a part, has a theology conference. This year's theme was on marriage. Uh, it was actually really helpful and applicable to a lot of what we are uh, thinking and processing in our world today. Um, but that is uh, from you guys allowing us to go, so thank you for that. When I came back on Friday to start getting stuff ready for the men's breakfast, I walked into the kitchen and Barb had everything laid out and labeled and ready to go. And I said, I get to sleep in for 15 more minutes tomorrow, which is great. Because at conferences, I average like four hours of sleep a night because you're up late talking and catching up with friends from across the country and getting up early to get back to the conference on time. It's, it's a whole thing. Braden told me he slept until 1130 yesterday to make up for the lack of sleep that he got during our time together. Um, but the other piece, we, I was talking with uh, some of my friends from uh, across the, the country as well, just about the difference of being at a conference like that and then coming back to what is, feels like home. Um, and it's always, we were talking about just how weird it is to have to go preach at someone else's church because it, it, you can't relate or connect the same way. So there, there's a sense of, of uh, joy that I have coming back here. And as I look across the room, just knowing your stories and your faces and your histories, there's a, a great privilege that comes from that. Now, um, looking at Revelation 1, ran into a friend this week uh, whose son uh, attended the church I pastored in Cheyenne for a while and made me think of this, this story when, in, in connection to Revelation. Um, but the reality is I am not much of a gambler because generally it's, it's like money that you're just going to throw away. Um, now, every time I've, I've driven through Vegas, I stop for food and I play the penny slots just so I can say I did it. Uh, but it's really depressing walking into some of those places because you see people throwing money away on a regular basis. Um, but one time I got the better of a friend with a guaranteed bet. 
Now, uh, March Madness is one of my favorite times of year. Like, I think it should be a national holiday where everyone's off of school for a few days or work so that you can just sit down and watch as many basketball games as you possibly can. So this particular year, uh, it was like right as TV streaming was coming out and starting to be like a thing. Um, so I had a, a number of friends over to my house. We were, we, I had the projector up in the basement, so we were watching one game on the big screen, watching another game on a TV and another game on tablets. Like it, was, it was a whole thing. But then there were a few of us that were also playing a board game while the, the game was playing on the main screen. But what I noticed, because I couldn't see the, the screen really well because there were seats in between us, I pull, so I pulled it up on my phone. But what was taking place on my phone was about 45 seconds ahead of what was happening on the projector. Now, my friend didn't know this because I like, had it on my lap underneath the table. And so I was like, dude, I bet you 10 bucks that that guy's going to dribble it down to the court and take a three-pointer. He's like, oh, you're on. So he bet me. And he's like, how did you know? And I was like, okay, double or nothing. He's like, well, so I said, okay, I, I bet they're going to bring it down, shoot it, miss. They're going to get the rebound and lay it. Like, well, I have to take that bet. That's a no-brainer. So double or nothing, and then he, so I obviously won again. He's like, dude, that is not fair. What is happening? And then he looked down at my leg, and he was like, you son of a, and started trying to punch me. <laughs> now, I, I share that story because it was a guaranteed bet, which is exactly what we're going to be seeing as we work through Revelation. When we talk about hope, when we talk about what the purpose, the function, the, the whole goal of history is, is aiming us to, is it's a guaranteed, it's a sure bet that what we're reading in Revelation is, is going to come to, put, come to pass. So it, it's not like us just, just gambling penny slots. It's not like us throwing our money away as we try to, to bet on who, who Jesus is, who he's going to be, and, and the implications for that for all of human history. But keep that in mind as we work through Revelation. Like, this is God's commitment, his promise to us as his people, that all of his promises are going to be completely fulfilled perfectly someday. So with that said, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Revelation 1, we're going to look at the first eight verses together this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angels, sorry, His angel to His servant John, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. As you're seated, I ask you to once again, please join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the reality that you are in control. We thank you for the words of, of this promise, these words of this prophecy, these words of this revealing, and pray that we as your people would be blessed because of you. Help us to keep our eyes, our gaze, our focus completely fixed on Jesus Christ and let everything else fade away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I shared last week, part of the reason that I'm wanting to study this is because of the blessing. 
So we're going to see in this section all the, the blessings and the ways that these blessings come about for us in our lives today. Now, as we look at the text, the very first word that is in the original language in, in the Greek is the word for revelation. That is the word apocalypse. Like uh, many times, uh, Micah shared a story with me, me recently that, that uh, in youth ministry, you do these fun things called stump the pastor, where everyone tries to come up with a question that the pastor can't answer. Um, and so one of the times Micah got a question, what is the apocalypse? And he said, it is the revealing, the, the revelation. And none of the kids were happy with his answer. But that's what it means. Notice it's revealing. That is the opposite of hidden. So this book, this text, this letter that we are going to be studying for a long time is meant to be studied and understood and then applied and lived out in our lives. So if anyone ever tells you that this book has hidden meaning or we shouldn't seek to learn and discern this book, point them to the first word of the first verse, the revealing. This book is going to give us a picture of what is taking place right now in the spiritual realm. It's a peek behind the curtain to see things as God sees them. Now, prepositions are important. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That could also be translated the revelation about Jesus Christ. And I think John, when he was writing this, was signifying both. Like, the point is the revelation is completely focused on Jesus. And I think this is important for a couple reasons. First of all, all of history is centered on Jesus the Christ. We literally divide, until recently, divided our um, ages of the earth into B.C. before Christ and A.D., Anno Domini, which is the year of the Lord. That is when He first came. So everything that is going to be revealed in this book comes about only because of what Jesus has accomplished in His life, death, and resurrection. Secondly, that means that the entire focus of this book has to be on Jesus. It's not on our experiences. It's not on the perspectives of what the great tribulation period will be like. All of those stories need to remain in the background. As we remember, the focus is on the revealing of Jesus. Now, you can summarize this if you've seen like the portrait mode on the phones that they've started coming out with now that helps provide a focus point. So I took a picture as I was doing this this morning. So like your eyes are drawn to a specific point when you look at that picture, right? Like the focus, the focal point, the thing that you see that is standing out is the coffee cup. But you can also change the focal point so suddenly the coffee cup just becomes blurry, like that. So now suddenly, where's your, where's your focus drawn? The messy bookshelves. Like, you can hardly read that the, the mug is, is from God's chosen chicken, Chick-fil-A. So similarly, when we read through the book of Revelation, our temptation or our tendency is to look at the second picture. Like, look at what's going on behind the scenes instead of bringing our eyes to where God actually wants them to be, focusing on Jesus Christ. So as we read through all this book, remember, bring it back to, center everything that we're reading and studying through this book on Jesus Christ. Like, we're going to read some pretty fantastical descriptions of creatures, of, of prayers of incense going up before the throne of God. But remember, keep those in the background. They're not the main event. So as we're looking at this, this text does not begin. The mystery of all the, the events that will take place at the end of all things. It says the revealing of Jesus. Keep that the focus. Now, this revelation is of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants. Servants is used seven times throughout the book of Revelation. Now, remember last week I said that most of the time when numbers are mentioned in Revelation, they signify something. It's a symbol standing for something else. And we're going to see seven again coming up in, in just a couple verses. So when seven is used, what it's referring to is perfection. 
So if you think of, of the perfect created order, after uh, Genesis 1, God created everything. At the end of it, it was complete. The seventh day, God rested because the work was done. That is complete, perfection done. So when seven is used in Revelation, it's most likely and most often referring to perfection. So he uses this seven, and, and like there's, there's a couple other phrases that are used, repeated seven times. We'll look at another one in just a minute that is significant to us because it's referring to the completion of all of this. So when it's talking about servants in Revelation, it's talking about believers. So it occurs here, it occurs in chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 19, verse 5, chapter 22, verse 3, and chapter 22, verse 6. Everyone got that? Just as this book we see was written to reveal, it's also for Christians, for His servants. Now, we also need to admit and acknowledge there's something weird here. Revelation of Jesus, God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. How many years has it been since this was written? Almost 2,000. Is that soon? In, in some people's minds, that might, if, you, if you take the however many thousands of years the earth has existed, that's, that's, I guess, somewhat soon. But when we approach this, this remember, this is, this is God's revelation to us, centered on Jesus Christ, and then filtered down through, through His lens to us. So when we think about soon, we have to know what does God mean when He talks about soon? Or how does, how does God even view time? If God exists completely outside of time and space, what is soon according to God? There's an article I read recently titled, uh, What Does It Mean When We Talk About the Imminent Return of Christ? And I think this summary is helpful. It's written by a guy named A.T. Pearson, who was a a very big evangelist and missiologist in the 19th century, so in the 1800s, writing about the need for us to evangelize the world. So he he defines it this way, imminence is the combination of two conditions, certainty and uncertainty. An imminent event is one which is certain to occur at some time, uncertain at which time. Imminent is not synonymous with impending. It is not exact to say that what is imminent is near at hand. It may or may not be. So when we think of imminent, we're not thinking that it is coming soon in our minds as, as in we think of time. And, and we also have to like bring in other verses. Like think of 2 Peter 3.8. It says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So if we take that math, it's only been two days since Jesus ascended into heaven. That's not long. <laughs> And what if his return is delayed for two more days? That's not very long. Like, I, th- I think of my kids who are some of the most, they're at the age where they're just very impatient. So, my kids who are unbelievably impatient can even do a pretty good job waiting for four days for a big event that is coming up. Like, Ellie's birthday is tomorrow. So, if you see her, make sure you tell her happy birthday. Um, but she's been wait, like counting down the days for the past, since we got into February, to get up to her birthday. She can wait for that. So, if the Lord tarries two or three or four more days, what is that in the big scheme of things? Now, not only is it soon, but he made it known, or remember last week I talked about, he he signified this by sending his angel. Now, angel is is basically just a transliteration from the Greek into the English of the word. It's just angelos, which is in the Greek a way of talking about a messenger, which gets to the purpose of angels. Angels exist to serve as God's messengers. They are sent, they are commissioned by God to bring specific certain messages to his people. So we see in this text that this divine emissary, this angel, is speaking on God's behalf. And we'll see John throughout this book interacting with a number of different angels. But remember, the angels are not the point. All the angels are just subservient to God. The angels don't accept worship. Like at one point, John becomes so overwhelmed at the visions that he's seeing that he falls down on his face at an angel's feet. Angels are are, are just like you and I. They are created beings, just like you and I in that sense. They have a role to play in God's cosmic plan, but unlike us, 
They are not embodied creatures. In 1 Peter, Peter actually tells us that the angels wish they could understand the implications of the salvation we experience. So angels have a different kind of relationship to God than we do. Now, this angel is ministering to a specific person, his believer, his servant, John. Remember, one of the 12 disciples who was with Jesus, ministered with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You can go back to last week's message if you want to hear more about him. But John's job was to testify or be a messenger to the Word of God. You see that? John's not making something up. He's not just trying to tell some fanciful story like the Lord of the Rings. There, I got my Lord of the Rings in today. Uh, Karen and I recently watched uh, the new Wonka movie, which reused one of my favorite songs from the old movie, Pure Imagination, where the first line in the song is, come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. And it, it just struck me because I think we have a tendency to read Revelation through that same lens. Like when we, when we open up the book to Revelation, suddenly we're in this land of pure imagination. It makes no sense. We throw out logic and reason, but that's not true. Because it is the Word of God, we hold on to it just like the other 65 books. And what is this testifying about again? <laughs> Notice this. Who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of, there it is again, Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus Christ might be the center of the focus of this book? We also, it's not just the Word of God, it's whatever He saw. Now, saw is a really, or see, is a really important verb throughout Revelation. It's another way of John telling us and signifying to us, similarly to the angel, that, that John is just a messenger who is recording all the things that God is revealing to him. And then we get to verse 3, which is the whole reason that I wanted to preach through this book. And I've heard this, people refer to this verse in particular as the beginning of the Revelation Beatitudes. That is the blessing that comes about from reading and keeping the words of this prophecy. So verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Now that near, again, connects back to soon all the way up here. Talked about that earlier. So throughout the book of Revelation, once again, there are seven blessings. Perfection, probably signifying the whole or full or complete blessing that comes about through this book. So just really briefly to summarize where all these blessings are. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, keep what is written. Second, 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 16, 15, blessed is the one who stays awake. 19, 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 22, verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 22, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. So all these blessings, the blessing that comes about by being obedient to God is through all seven of these blessings throughout this book. So now back to verse 3, it says, it begins, blessed is the one who reads aloud. Uh, one translation actually adds a little bit to that phrase. It says, reads aloud in the church. Someone pointed that out to me last week as we were studying through this together. This gets to the way the early church received these letters. So the way the church would, would distribute or share or get these messages across is they'd be sent to a specific church. Someone would stand up in the midst of the congregation on a Sunday morning, just like we are doing today, and someone would read them to the whole church. So can you imagine just how shocking that Sunday morning would have been where these churches get this letter from the Apostle John, they've been looking forward to it, wondering how he's doing, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos, haven't heard from him in a while, and then they start reading this letter. What, what do you think it would, would have done to them? But notice it's not enough for us just to hear it. It, it requires us to move on and do something with it. 
They hear it, and they keep what is written in it. So these words have something for us to do. Hear, keep, obey all these words. So as we work our way through this book, you need to keep that in mind. Look for the things that we should be doing with the message in these words. And it may take some sanctified imagination for us to get to what we need to do with them, but that's okay. Now, as we just read, this revealing isn't just for one person. It's for all believers. Or you could say this is for the church. So we need to be a part of the church in order to correctly live out and receive the blessing that God gives through this revelation, which is exactly what we see in the next section. So the other next focus that John is going to give us is the blessing that comes in the church. So it begins John, we talked about that last week, the author of the book, is written to seven churches. Now, those seven churches are the, the theme of chapters 2 and 3, so we'll, we'll get to studying those in, in specificity uh, in a com- couple weeks. But remember, numbers are symbolic. So these letters are addressed to seven specific churches, but these churches also stand in for all churches in all times and in all places. So seven standing for fullness or completeness. So representing all of the different issues and, and, and difficulties that churches throughout history are going to be facing. And another reason just to think that, that um, these are written to all the churches, not just one specific church. If you, uh, it's like turn over one page, uh, two pages in your, your Bibles there, look at Revelation 2 verse 7, and then this is the exact same verse that is repeated with all, the, all seven of the churches. It says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So yes, letter is addressed to one specific church, but then what is written in those is also applicable to all the other churches. Again, we'll get there soon. Got to get through the first chapter first. So John is writing this to the seven churches in Asia, and he begins with a common greeting in New Testament letters, grace and peace. This is significant because grace and peace always comes from God in the Bible. On our own, we can't have either of those things. Grace is unmerited favor. The fact that God has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you don't know how far that is, That's the point. God has literally placed eternity between us and our sins. And because of that grace, because of that gift that God has given to us, we can now have peace with God vertically and horizontally with each other. Without God's work, there is only fighting and disagreement, but now God allows us to have true and lasting peace. And and again, just like many other letters in the New Testament, the fact that he begins this letter in this way is showing us that that part of this book is a letter written to the other churches. It's called an epistle, if you want the technical term. So it's grace and peace to you from the one who is, was, and is to come. John is actually alluding back here to one of the most significant uh, manifestations of God's presence in the entire Bible in Exodus chapter 3.14. It's a story where uh, Moses sees a, he's a shepherd taking care of his sheep out, out in, in the wilderness, and he sees a bush that is burning but not consumed. So he walks up and gets close to this bush, and suddenly out of this, the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord describes himself as, I am who I am. Now, there's all sorts of debate about what that, that phrase actually means, like some who have described it as the one who is, uh, what is it? I am the one who is, or I am, I will always be. Like there's all this sorts of debate that is really summarizing all the debates about this in the phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come. And part of the reason John talks about this, so the fact that he is, these churches are facing this, this uh, intense season of persecution. By saying he is, this is saying Jesus is reigning over the Roman Empire. 
We're saying he was. He's saying he has always been the sovereign Lord, even over the Egyptian empire, which was the, the predominant powerhouse of the time in, in the uh, beginning of the Old Testament. And then finally, he will be. Someday, we will finally see his ultimate rule and reign when he returns. So these churches, this was most likely written in the early 90s AD when there was a, a few-year period of, of brief but very intense persecution. So I don't know about you, but my experience thus far in my life has been when things are difficult, it becomes a lot easier to start doubting that God is actually working in your life. So for a number of of these churches, they're seeing their friends dragged off and killed for choosing to identify with Jesus. And, And in our day, we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who that description is also true of them. I think of the church in Afghanistan. Uh, that for the first time in their history, just a number, uh, probably five, six, seven years ago, were able to publicly declare their faith. Like in Afghanistan, you had to sign papers denoting what religion you are a part of. Um, and then when, when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban came over, that list that they signed their names to became the hit list for the Taliban. So if you are facing imminent death, it can be hard to trust that God is still in control. That's part of the reason we need to have good theology, because our experience will train us to neglect the fact that God is, God was, and God will be. He also goes on, as God who is, was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. So again, we have the number seven, seven referring to completeness or perfection, the perfect spirit. Many believe that that this is actually a reference to Isaiah 11, chapter 2 which says, and and this one comes up as well in in, uh, Messianic prophecies about Jesus. So Jesus, when he comes and and, uh, arrives, is described as as fulfilling this. So seven things, spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel and strength, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So again, we need to have a better understanding, like we need to interpret and read and, and apply everything that we're reading in Revelation through the lens of the Old Testament. So most people believe this is exactly what John is referring to when he, when he sees this image of the seven spirits, it's the perfect spirit of God, who is the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. And then, just to make sure that we understand that God is Trinity, he includes the Son. Dear friends, do not miss this reality. Like, I remember I read uh, the Da Vinci Code shortly after that came out. And if you don't know uh, history or the way councils work or the way the church came to believe various core doctrines of what we believe, uh, Dan Brown does a really good job of, of uh, misinterpreting history, I'll say. The early church didn't make up the idea of the Trinity. What they're doing is they're taking a summary of something like this. The one who is, who was, who is to come, that's referring to the Father. From the seven spirits, that is the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, that is the Son. The early church, the early Christians didn't make up this idea trying to just confuse people. The church affirmed the way God has revealed himself to us throughout all of Scripture. But then, as if to signify or say that the focus of this needs to be Jesus Christ, notice how how many more words John uses to describe Jesus Christ. I'll change the color. Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The faithful witness is is Jesus is the first one who who came to demonstrate, to live out the mission of the Father, which is to seek and save the lost. We also see that he's the firstborn from the dead. And and I love the way, um, is it that one? Yep, Tom Schreiner summarized this idea. He says, others were resuscitated like Lazarus, but they all died again. Jesus, on the other hand, has conquered death forever. 
So it's almost unfair to refer to what happened to Lazarus as the resurrection because Lazarus eventually went on to die. Anyone and everyone that Jesus brought back from the dead eventually went on to die again, except for Jesus. Now, this will matter, this idea will matter when we get to Revelation 21, which is a number of months away, but keep it in mind as we continue through this. Like, have you ever considered the fact that Jesus, after the resurrection, is the only example of what our resurrected bodies will someday be like? Now, we see, we see a few things from that. One, uh, there are some things that will be the same. So the disciples recognized him. He was, Thomas was invited to come and touch his scars that were still there. But there are other things that will be different. Like, apparently, Jesus could walk through walls. For a season, it, it seemed like Jesus was able to conceal who he really was as he would talk with people. Now, it's also important for us to realize we, we today have a tendency to miss the significance of, of, of firstborn, uh, just because we, we've kind of uh, flattened the playing field when it comes to our kids. In the first century, the firstborn was literally the most important child. The firstborn was the one who received all the recognition. They received literally a double inheritance of the blessing that was distributed to the kids. They had all the privilege and all the prestige. But this also connects us to Psalm 89, verse 7. Again, remember, we need to read and interpret and understand Revelation through the lens of the Old Testament. It says, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth, which is, again, what many scholars believe John is alluding to here. He's the firstborn from the dead and goes on to say the ruler over the kings of the world. Now, we, we can talk about this politically, and we, we actually we talked about this politically, Romans uh, Psalm 89, this past week at, at the conference we were at. And, and I was just reminded, I shared it in my class this morning, every government and leader in the world will someday give an account to the Lord for how they, how they lead. You'll see that in Revelation 6, so we'll get there in a few weeks. Even though it might seem like the evil government is winning, and it, it did seem like that at this time, in the world that really matters, which for now is unseen, they have no power. <laughs> Jesus is their ruler. It's already true spiritually, and someday soon it will be true visibly. Which gets us to the final thing, the blessing comes only by Jesus. So in spite of the persecution that the churches are currently facing, that's the opposite of what they're actually facing in the heavenly realm. So here's what it, the way it describes us. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. Like, that's a beautiful picture. Don't miss what that's saying. Jesus loves you. All of you, the, the real you, not some future you, there's nothing you can do that will make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make him love you less. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths in Romans to tell us that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. But because of that love, we're also freed. We are set free from our sins by his blood. Think of what Paul writes in Galatians 5. It says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What this tells us is we are no longer slaves to sin, we are actually freed to stop sinning. Where, where we used to be bound by sin, where the only thing that we could do was sin, we can now become slaves to Jesus, which completely frees us to be exactly what, who God has created us to be. And because we are free, we can go on to become a kingdom and priests to God and His Father. Now, this actually fulfills something God promised back in Exodus chapter 19, where he, he tells His people, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. 
These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So Tom Schreiner, picking up on this idea and the fact of what John says in Revelation says, the promise of salvation given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and to Israel has now been fulfilled in Jesus and given to us. Like, if you think about these two terms, a kingdom, a kingdom has a king, it has a land or a place, and it has a people. So now we have a king named Jesus. Our place is heaven, which at some point will be coming to earth, and his people is the church. And because of what Jesus has done, because we are a part of this kingdom, we're now called priests to God. Like, I don't it just hit me this week. I don't think we often think about the implications of the fact that we today are priests. Priests are those who have complete and free and open access to God. Like, have you considered that? That should blow your mind. Finally and, and, and completely and suddenly, we don't need a sacrificial system. Like, read, through, read through Leviticus, right, Micah? <laughs> think of all the things that the people had to do. We don't need uh, magic words like an incantation to approach God. We don't need to dress a certain way. We don't need to act a certain way. We, as priests, can come straight into the presence of God, which John responds the only way you can if you start contemplating that reality. Amen. Doxologically, worshiping, praising, adoring God for who He was and is and is to come. To Him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of my favorite questions to ask uh, people who are pursuing ministry, well, just anyone, any, any believer, really, when is the last time the implications of the gospel message emotionally moved you? Like The fact that we're saved has implications in the way we live our lives, including the way we handle our emotions. Now, amen doesn't mean goodbye, like I'm hanging up the phone. Amen actually means I agree, or may it be so. It's a way of signifying agreement, and it will come up again in just a couple verses. So then he goes on to, to try to bring attention or focus to something. So CSB says, look, other translations will say, behold. It's a way of saying, pay attention. So the Greek didn't have uh, what we have, like bold or underline or italics, a way of signifying or bringing specific attention to a word. So they had to use a specific word, which is this word, look or behold. I love it in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's hanini, which just sounds really funny. So like, look, hanini. It, what what uh, John is picking up here, though, is a theme that is going to carry us through a, a lot of, of the rest of Revelation. He's referring to a couple specific verses and prophecies that God made in the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled in Jesus. So one of the most quoted uh, books in, uh, from the Old Testament that John uses is the book of Daniel, which is another one that is very difficult for us to, to understand and interpret correctly. So Daniel has a vision in Daniel chapter 7 where he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man that will that's important, we'll talk about that later, uh, not today, like a couple weeks, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So if you go back here, you can see the allusion to Daniel right there, he is coming with the clouds. And then he brings another prophecy from the Old Testament for the rest of the section. That is Zechariah 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. They will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for, there's that term, firstborn again. So if you look at this, there's some different language, but it's the same idea. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. 
So notice that the Zechariah text has been altered in two significant ways. The phrase every eye and of the earth have been added to universalize the original meaning. So Jesus' second coming is going to be very different than the first time. The second time it won't be incognito, it won't be in a humble major, it'll be visible so everyone can see it. Again, I, I really appreciate it, not that one, uh, something else Tom Schreider said about this idea in this passage. He says, all the tribes of the earth probably alludes to Genesis 12:3, and the promise to Abraham that many will become part of his family. John declares that all the tribes of the earth, all who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord, have pierced Jesus. Or we could say that every human being has crucified and pierced Jesus, but those who have repented of doing so are freed from their sins. John responds to what he has written in verse 7 with an affirmative, even so, and amen. The salvation of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked are both a matter of joy and revelation. The latter not because of vindictiveness, but as a matter of justice. Now, I, I somewhat uh, tentatively used this illustration, um, but I think it makes the point well. Um, when I was growing up, I was not allowed to watch R-rated movies until The Passion of the Christ came out. And then my youth group took all sorts of different people to go watch this rated R movie called The Passion of the Christ. Um, but there's a scene in there that, that is really uh, uh, poignant and I think gets to what uh, Tom Schreiner is saying in, in this section here. Um, in, when the crucifixion account is actually taking place, uh, there's a hand that holds the nail on the wrist of uh, Jim Caviezel, who plays Jesus, and then uh, same hand uh, nails the, the, hammers the nail into Jesus' wrists. Um, the person who played that scene out was Mel Gibson. And he did that intentionally to demonstrate that it was my sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Now, I understand Mel Gibson is a weird dude who, like, has gone off the rails in some odd ways, so I'm not endorsing or supporting him as a person, but the, under, like, the theological understanding of him as the director of a movie, putting himself in the movie in that, only, that, that specific scene, I think, does signify exactly what, what is talked about here. We could say that every human being, you and me, have crucified and pierced Jesus. I think about that in the song that we sing, like, and I think about this every um, Good Friday as well. It was my sin <laughs> that held him there. That's amazing. So then John responds, that this verse 7, amen, so let it be, because justice is coming. And, and it's interesting to me. Um, keep in mind what I said last week. Don't ever take hell lightly. Don't ever take the coming judgment lightly, because final justice is permanent. There are no take-backs, there are no do-overs. And what's interesting to me is everyone that I've ever talked to wants justice of some sort. Like, the natural human impulse is to want justice when you're wronged, but grace when you're the one who does wrong. And where do you see that perfectly made manifest? In Jesus Christ. See, all of us, we have this tendency to self-justify and blame others very quickly, and everyone has this impulse towards justice, but justice for someone else, not for me. Remember, eternity is a, is a very, very long time. Unless or until someone bows the knee to Jesus before death, they will certainly bow the knee to Jesus after death. And then as if to signify that, that, that I mean, summarize essentially, so it is to be amen, it ends with, with God's words. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are Greek letters, the beginning and end of the Greek alphabet. So if you've ever seen this uh, logo, which I'm, I'm just going to assume everyone in this room has seen it and bought something from them at some point. Um, I, love, I actually love studying logos because there's a, there tends to be subliminal messaging in them. Like you may eat some Frito-Lays tonight as you're watching a, a specific football game. 
Um, and on the Frito-Lay's package, you can find two people dipping a chip into some salsa. Um, FedEx, if you have never paid attention to it, there's an arrow embedded in the FedEx logo, right, Andrew? Used to work for FedEx. So Amazon, what I have learned, so it's supposed to be a smile as in everyone that orders things from Amazon is going to be very happy, but then the arrow moves from A to Z, as if signifying we have everything you could ever possibly want or need, everything from A to Z. So that's the exact same thing that God is doing when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He says, I am the beginning, I am the end. If you want anything from the beginning to the end, it has to come only through me. And, and we know that that's true as well. He goes on to say, repeats this refrain from the beginning, the one who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Believers can be guaranteed that justice is coming because, because God is the Almighty. Now, in the Old Testament, that word uh, Almighty is most often used as a translation for the Hebrew word, the Lord of hosts, which signifies that, that God is the Lord of the armies of heaven. Keep that in mind for later too, because that will be coming up. So church... As we think and contemplate, what do we do with this? We need to remember that God is in complete control. It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter how socially ostracized we become as Christians. This world is not our home. Jesus, though, has defeated sin and death. He is currently ruling over all the kings of the earth, and we have nothing to be afraid of. That sounds like the greatest blessing I could ever hope for. Now, one of the ways that we visibly demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord is by being obedient to His commands one of which is to regularly practice communion. So communion is supposed to be like a family meal where we gather around the table to reminisce and give thanks for God's provision in all of our lives. If you haven't gotten the elements yet and would like to celebrate with us, please make sure you get those during the next song. Now, while you don't need to be careful or don't need to be perfect to celebrate this meal, you do need to be a believer who is trusting in Jesus Christ to be the center and the focus of your life. So if you aren't a believer, I'd ask you to please pass by the elements, but not pass by the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and ask Him to become the center of your life, because that is the only way to be blessed. Now, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing a song to reflect on these realities, and then we will demonstrate that Jesus is the center of our lives by celebrating communion. So would you please pray with me? God, we thank you that... that we can be blessed because of you and because of your work in our lives. We thank you that you are the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And we pray that we, as, as your people, as your church, would be strengthened to remind each other of that reality, to better reflect on that reality, and to better live in to the reality that, that we can be hopeful and hope-filled. God, I pray that we, because of, of knowing where history is moving, that you would make us to be a joyful people, that even when, when life isn't going our ways, even when we face suffering and persecution and possibly even death, we can still be joy-filled because we're not going through anything you haven't gone through before us. So we thank you for this opportunity we have to learn about how you've revealed yourself to us to learn about how we can be better blessed, and I pray that we would hear and keep the words that are written in this prophecy. We pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord and for His sake. Amen.